0: Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: I think what seals are and what most people are and should be are optimal performance. Optimal performance is, in fact, what's the very best I can do in this moment, whatever the best might look like in this moment.
0: That was our guest for today, Rich Divney. There's more from Rich coming up right after this. We have to say a big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawara, that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars physical mental social and occupational so do make sure to check it out at hawaralife.com. h-a-u-o-r-a life.com
2: welcome to sleep eat perform repeat with your hosts david clancy and Kieran dunn this is a podcast about high performance What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Rich Diveny, founder of the Attributes and retired Navy SEAL. Commander Rich Diveny served as a Navy SEAL for 20 years, toured Iraq and Afghanistan many times, and has been heavily involved in the selection process. An optimist with Simon Sinek Inc, a regular speaker on topics such as optimal performance, resilience and stress inoculation, now Rich has unpacked the key attributes for success. Understanding your own attributes in areas such as mental acuity, grit and drive can help inform how to master those innate qualities that drive performance. This is what we focus on during this captivating discussion. We also explore why Rich joined the SEALs, flying military jets, and learn about BUDS, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, and the extremely challenging mental and physical toll it can take. Rich shares stories of overseas deployments, optimal versus peak performance, leadership, and his own personal set of attributes, and how they've changed with time. He explains the differences between skills and attributes, controlling what you can control, and what high performance is all about
1: rich thanks a million for joining us today how are you sir i'm great thanks for thanks so much for having me it's uh it's a really pleasure to be here so
2: rich for the for the people here across the pond having a a former navy seal and someone who's worked in navy seal training and now written a book on attributes will be really intriguing to a lot of different people but we'd love to where did this all start for you how did you decide you were wanting to be a navy seal from the get-go
1: Wow. Well, so I, I grew up and, uh, you know, wanted to be a pilot when I was, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was a private pilot. So we'd go flying with him on the weekends and, and he'd take my, my twin brother and my little brother, and my older sister with him. And, um, and my twin brother and I were sold. I mean, we just loved the, the, the whole flying thing. And so we wanted to, so we we're like, well, what's the coolest thing to fly? Obviously it's military jets. Right. And, um, And so then we started looking at the Air Force versus Navy. um, But the Navy guys landed their jets on ships, which was like, wow, that's pretty. There's nothing really cooler than that, right? So, uh, so we wanted to be Navy pilots from the time we were 10 years old, which was before Top Gun, by the way. So (laughs) we didn't didn't call it a Top Gun uh, rush, but um, but it was really um, it was really in the 90s after the first Gulf War. I was in high school and I, I saw a magazine article about the special operations of each of the services. And of course, they highlighted the Navy SEALs in there. And and it struck me that it, it, first of all, it struck me that they were kind of everywhere. The Navy SEALs were like in the water, they were in the desert, they were in the jungle, they were in the snow. I was like, man, these guys do everything. Um, but I also love the idea that they were from the water. I, I love the ocean. My two loves were flying in the ocean. And so um, and so this idea that these guys kind of made the water their safe place uh, was really intriguing to me. So. So when I was in college, I was part of an ROTC unit, and um, and ultimately I said to myself, I didn't, I knew I could be a pilot, but I didn't. I wanted to see if I could be a seal, and I knew I'd always wonder if I didn't try it out. I never wanted to be in my cockpit of my airplane and look at seals and be like, I wonder if I could do that. So, so I decided to try it, and, and it worked out well. I went to seal training in '96, and uh, fortunately got through it, and then spent <laughs> the spent the next 20, 20 plus years in the seal teams through a very kinetic period so you know uh so that was also um you know obviously not planned but uh but taught me a lot about uh, seal operations and of course got to, got to run training as well
0: brilliant and when we think of the navy seals or even the u.s army anything like that over here it's such we do with such intrigue because we see them as the most elite performers that are out there yeah Now you've managed to gather a lot of research and look to back on a lot of what you've done in your time there and condensed it into one book, which is released this year, the attributes and it's brilliant. And what we just want to know is what was it that made you gave you the burn and desire or the urge to write that book?
1: Yes. Um, well, so a couple things. I, I'm very, I'm very interested in what I call elemental human behavior. So, what what is it that causes us to do what we do? And um, and and what's interesting about the military and kind of the mythology that surrounds the military, whether it's in in Ireland or here in the states or, or wherever, um, is that there's often a misunderstanding about what those units actually are and do. Um, and people think of Navy SEALs as these kind of badass, tough. Guys who can do everything and and kicking down doors and rescuing hostages and that's certainly part of the job. But ultimately, <laughs> ultimately I'm watching you guys nod. We're both <laughs> <nodding> here. <Yeah. laughs> ultimately, the um, the job is actually uh, to be what I would call masters of uncertainty. Uh, the job is about being able to drop into environments of deep challenge and stress and uncertainty and figure it out and perform because that's what special operations were designed to do. They were designed to go in and. And frustrate and agitate the enemy, and do things that the enemy never thought. Um, and so, I thought about so. So it it kind of it. I began to think about this when I was running a, a selection and training course at a very specialized SEAL command, and um, and we were having trouble articulating why guys weren't making it through. At this particular command, we were, we got very experienced SEALs, so guys who had five or ten years experience, trying out, applying for our command, and we put them through our own selection process. Which is about nine months long, and we would get about a fifty percent attrition rate, and that's okay. The fifty percent attrition rate is fine. You're always going to get attrition. Uh, What was not okay is we weren't we weren't able to explain it and articulate it very well. So why these guys were failing, and we we found ourselves leaning on things like, well, they couldn't shoot very well, or or couldn't do this, or couldn't do that, and it didn't make sense because these guys were experienced. And so I had to kind of think back on what SEAL training was and what we were doing. And when I think back on my basic SEAL training, so the basic SEAL training that guys go through is called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training. And it's a, it's a six month course in San Diego, California, where a sailor goes and uh, after six months, um, you know, becomes a Navy SEAL. And it's a high attrition rate, it's about a 90% attrition rate. So only about 10% make it through. Um, and I remember in BUDS, they make you, I mean, you spend hundreds of hours running with big, heavy boats on your head, and you spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and running running around with those things and freezing in the surf zone and, and things like that. And I thought back, and I, you know, over the course of my 20-year career, I did hundreds of combat missions overseas, and I did thousands of training evolutions. Never on one did I ever carry a boat on my head or a 300-pound telephone pole, right? So so what they were doing to us in SEAL training wasn't, in fact, training us. They weren't training us to be Navy SEALs and the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were actually trying to put us in situations and environments to tease out innate qualities that told them if we had what it took to be to do the job, if we had what it took um, to be Navy SEALs when the environment was uncertain. And so these innate qualities are, in fact, attributes. And and when I kind of started looking at performance, I recognized that. That we often judge performance uh, based on skills, you know, um, because skills are tangible. So, and there's a di- there's a distinct difference between skills and attributes, as I describe in the book. And so, really, the process was kind of understanding the difference between skills and attributes, and then um, and identifying and articulating that. But then, of course, I got out of the navy, and I was talking to businesses and 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 um, teams, and they would often come to me and say, "Hey, Rich, we." We're forming up dream teams—the best salesperson, best marketing, best, best graphics design, whatever—and it's great. Things, are, things usually go great for a little bit, like a couple of days or a couple of weeks. But as soon as things turn sideways, as soon as the environment changes and things don't go as planned and things become uncertain, the team f- seems to fall apart. Fa- you know, turns toxic. What's going wrong? What's what's wrong? And I said, well, it's very simple. You're 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 assessing. You're building your team based on the wrong things. You're building them based on skills, not attributes. And That was really the impetus of the idea. And I said to myself, well. Yeah, you know, someone should write a book on this. And so maybe I will. <laughs> and so I did.
2: Do you think your attributes, your personal attributes have changed with the time? So say if you did, we've done your online tests, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bought the workbook, because I want to work on my mental acuity, I want to work on my grit, have a bit of an understanding as to where I benchmark up against all the other people that have done it. And say you did that during your period of time on tour versus now having gone through the process of all the research and and putting all the thoughts down to paper has your personal set of attributes changed or or what would that look like
1: yeah it's a great question so so a couple of things about attributes so first of all we we all have all of them um, and uh, and the difference in each one of us is is really the the extent to which we have each the levels to which we have each right so for example adaptability i might be out of 10 10 being high and one being low, I might be a level eight on adaptability, which means when the ch- environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay. Someone else might be a level three, which is when the same thing happens to them, it's not very easy for them. It's difficult for them to, to go with the flow. Um, now, if we were to line all of our attributes on the on a wall, I line them up on a wall, uh, like dimmer switches, all of our all of our positions of our switches would be different. It's it'd it look like a, a jagged line and, and we'd look we'd all look different. So that's how we show up, right? Attributes are more innate. Um, and there's no judgment of that. It'd be like judging our hair color. It's useless. Right? You know, so it's, it's, it's how we show up. So so what I would say is that because you can develop attributes either very deliberately or because the environment places you under stress and challenge and they you just do so, um, my, I would say that I have probably hyperdeveloped some of the attributes I already had a lot of and certainly my SEAL career helped me with that. Um, and then there are certain attributes that I didn't, I don't think I had a lot of that I've worked actively to develop something like empathy. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I don't think I was a very empathetic person, you know, as a younger man and certainly meeting my wife and learning more about people and and human interaction has helped me and, and prompted me to develop my empathy. So, so I would say that my, my competencies and my attributes have changed, um, uh, some deliberately and some, because the environments that I put myself in have, have forced that way.
0: And you've obviously seen a change in your environment in terms of being now going into companies, going into organizations that we've seen, Zoom and American Airlines. Was there anyone in particular that took you by surprise with what attributes their employees were displaying early on when you went in to give a keynote or a workshop or webinar?
1: It's interesting. Uh, the answer is not necessarily because it's such, a, it's such a subjective process when you go into organizations and, um, and ask that question in terms of attributes that the interesting about attributes is that whereas we can't judge the attributes that we are the attribute levels we have as individuals you can actually put um some some uh some scoring or predominance on attributes when you start applying them to teams because every team is going to have a different set of attributes that that specific team requires to be good at right so so the attribute list for example that that's required to be a good navy seal is going to going to look different than the attribute list required to be a good teacher, or a doctor, or a graphic designer, whatever it is, the assessment or the the decoding of the attributes required for specific teams or specific organizations has to be subjective, has to be done within those organizations. And I've helped a few of those organizations do that decoding. And then of course, it's on them to say, okay, how does our team currently look? Where are our gaps? And what can we develop? And what can we hire for? Because then if you understand your gaps, you can say, well, now, I, you know, this team requires someone with high adaptability, and none of the team members have high adaptability at this moment, right? So now you can go higher for attributes versus just skills, because you cannot, you can always teach skills. Quick thing, I mean, skills, just to, to quickly highlight the difference, skills are not inherent, right? We're trained, we're taught how to do them, um, and they're very easy to assess, measure, and test, whereas attributes, they're inherent. They don't direct our behavior, they inform our behavior, right? Instead of, instead of a skill saying, hey, here's how and when to do something, an attribute says, here's how I'm going to show up, right? Our levels of patience and adaptability and resilience, for example, informed how we showed up when we were learning how to ride a bike, learning that skill and falling off a dozen times, right? Um, but because they're hidden in the background, they're very hard to assess, measure, and test. So it's hard you can't you can't sit across an interview table with someone um, and assess how adaptable or resilient they are, right? This is why. People and teams and organizations usually lean on skills because they're very score. They're, they're, they're very easy to score and see. A quick kind of question one might ask to determine whether or not it's an attribute or a skill would be, can I teach it or can, I, can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's likely a skill. If the answer is no, it's likely an attribute. So both of you could say, hey, Rich, uh, we want to go learn how to fire a pistol and hit a target, you know, hit a bullseye every time. Well, I could take both of you out to the range and teach you how to do that within a couple hours, right? That's a skill. But you could say, well, Rich, we want to learn how to be more patient. Well, I can't teach you patience, right? Mm-hmm. Patience is something you have to deliberately decide to do. So it has to be self-motivated, self-directed. And then uh, uh, yeah, it takes a willingness for, for that person to step into environments of discomfort um, and, and challenge so that they may test and tease that attribute. So process is very subjective uh, inside of organizations. It's always fun because it's a because once people start thinking down this lane, they are thinking from a whole different optic. And that's always fun. It kind of illuminates things that they hadn't seen before. So that's been, been fun to do.
2: I'd say there's a huge opportunity in kind of performance departments in pro sport. If you think about recruitment, a lot of that hinges sometimes on personality profiling and IDing and, you know, Joe Harry window and looking at feedback and how people could well work together. And that's when organizations really do it at a really good level, when they think about those things and how people might click and work well as a team.
1: You're you're talking about so so it ultimately comes down to potential, right? And um and this is where um sports, I mean sports is, athletics is one of those genres where you're probably in terms of uh, what's more important, skills or attributes. You're probably at an even even, right? Because skills are really important for for athletics because athletics are usually inside of a fixed contained environment inside of which there are rules. So skills are pretty. It's, it's a predictable environment, right? That's where skills really shine in predictable environments. However, I will say this. When you think about those teams that that in their recruitment process, they're looking deeper than just skills, you find that they are looking for potential. Potential is not what is. Potential is always what could be. Skills tell us what is. Attributes mm-hmm. tell us what could be, right? So if you want to select for potential, you need to you need to look at attributes because that's what's going to help you... Th- look down the road and follow that path.
0: Okay. And then speaking about predictable environments and maybe predictable events that happen in your life, there's often a big one and more for each person that challenge a barrier or something that they have to overcome. Does that affect attributes or maybe highlight ones more that maybe weren't around? So if something, maybe a family illness, does that change an individual's dial on certain attributes?
1: It it has the potential. It could do a couple of things. Um, so first, it could it could force development, right? Depending on that person. Mm-hmm. So so um, an example would be a kid who's growing up in a military family, right? We call them military brats here in the in the states, right? <laughs> and that and really that just means that 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 kid is is probably moving every two years, right? So that kid's changing schools every two years. Um, that kid may have shown up on this planet low on adaptability, right? However, that environment of changing schools every two, every two years has forced that child to kind of learn and develop their adaptability. That could happen, right? Now, it also could not happen, right? That, that child could actually have trouble every time they move. And it's because for the specific reason that they're low on adaptability. So, so environment could help develop that. But the other thing environments of challenge and stress do is they, they may also highlight what I call dormant attributes, you know, we may have high levels of certain attributes that we just don't know, because we've never been placed into a situation or environment that's tested and teased that attribute, right? So uh, this is kind of like like the Scrooge effect, right? Because the, the one night of haunting didn't cause the old miserly grumpy Scrooge to become empathetic. He was already empathetic. It's just the one night of haunting teased that out of him, right? That's a dormant attribute. So, so we all have dormant attributes. And I would kind of venture and challenge anybody who can think of a story in their lives that ends with the phrase, I didn't know I had it in me, is likely a story that describes some dormant attributes coming to the fore.
2: A huge piece of work that we do over here is we try to talk about presentness, being very much in the moment, being where your feet are. And we've heard it on this podcast before with you know somebody like Graham Betchart when he's worked with NBA players. And you have a lovely turn of phrase in it's the three foot world, right? It's that little yeah. moment of space in front of you, and we've really we, that's really resounded with us. I'd love if you could just expand on that concept a little bit more because it's it's such a huge pillar of the work we try to do here.
1: I will absolutely, and so this this kind of so to expand on it, I have to talk about courage and I have to talk about fear, <laughs> because, because really the idea is why when fear starts to show up, um, we our brains, our, our amygdala in our brains start to kind of get fired up, okay? Our, that's a threat detector. And we can, if the threat is high enough or our feeling of the threat is high enough or anxiety kind of raises too much or our fear... Um, we can go into amygdala override, right? Which means we're acting without thinking, which our conscious mind kind of comes offline, and we're just acting without thinking, okay? when we look at fear, okay, fear is really in essence, a combination of two things. It's the, it's the combination of anxiety plus uncertainty. Okay. Because you can have one without the other and fear is not, is, is not there, right? You can be anxious without being uncertain. This is like, I'm going to give a presentation at work next week. I'm a little anxious about it, but I know the material. I know the crowd. I know my boss. I'm just a little you know, nervous or anxious about it. There's anxiety without uncertainty. There's no fear. You can be uncertain without being anxious, okay? Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve, okay? Um, there's There's no fear there. When you have both of them show up, you begin to tickle that amygdala and fear starts to set in. You can actually look at buying down your fear by buying down either one of those elements, okay? Anxiety can be bought down internally. Anxiety is an internal physiological response. When we begin to get anxious, our pupils begin to dilate, our breathing quickens, things like that, where there are physiological things. So you can actually work in, re- in reverse to actually bring down your anxiety. You can do breathing exercises. You can actually open your gaze with visually, right? That, that has been proven to bring down anxiety. So you can buy down your anxiety with internal physiological methods. Buying down uncertainty is a little bit more difficult because uncertainty is external. That's the world around us that we don't understand, okay? But once you begin to buy down that anxiety and you bring your frontal lobe back online, you can actually begin to buy down uncertainty. By asking some questions, and this is what we're talking about in terms of controlling your three foot world. You look at the environment around you that's highly uncertain. You say, "What about this? Do I understand number one?" And then, "What about that that piece? Can I control in the moment?" And this is what I'm talking about. This is what we talk about in terms of controlling your three foot world. Whatever that is, could be um, I'm waiting. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hold on until the next meal, or I'm gonna hold on for. T- I'm just gonna get through the day, right? Or it could be I'm gonna I'm just gonna hold on for the next ten seconds, right? When you're freezing in the surf zone during seal training, it's kind of you're holding on to the next ten seconds. Or I can literally remember being in the surf zone freezing and saying, "Well, you know, I'm I'm really cold right now, but soon I'll be doing so many push-ups that I'm really hot again, right?" And I can remember doing so many push-ups. I'm like, "I'm I'm, I'm so hot and tired right now, but soon I'm gonna be I'm gonna be cooling off in the surf zone, right?" So, so whatever that three whatever that three foot world is, is the way you can start to step into fear. And what's interesting about fear is that when we step into it, a switch gets kicked in our brain. And this is, in fact, the courage switch. When we decide to step in or fight, our brains give us a dopamine reward because that's designed to say, hey, this is good, keep doing this. We are designed as humans to explore, to discover, to kind of keep moving into that which we do not understand and and, and, and discover it. So so nature's given us a reward system to actually step into our fear. So controlling your three-foot world is, in fact, a way you can actually practice your courage and continually step into your fear feel that reward feel how good it feels and actually seek some of those edges that you may have been avoiding
0: and then just going back to that kid who has to travel around the different bases has to change his environment every two years and adaptability is not one of his stronger attributes where would you say is the first port of call for an individual to go to develop a certain attribute now i know there can be different ones and different training or approaches for each Mm-hmm. What is your first protocol or first bit of advice for someone looking to develop these?
1: Well, first first is to understand where you fall on each, okay um, because because you you're because all of us have competencies and high levels of some and then low levels of others. So to understand where we fall on each is a is a true advantage because then you know what you need to work on and what you don't need to work on. The second thing would be say, okay, for those that I'm not as high on, do I need to develop them okay there are some attributes that you're low on that your life choices your the niche that you're in the career whatever the pathway you're on they don't require that attribute right when we think about um, a stand-up comic for example, I love comics I love what they do a stand-up comic doesn't necessarily need a lot of empathy okay in fact too much empathy may be a detriment to a, to a stand-up comic because how can you find funny at a, at a funeral if you are too empathetic right so The idea is to say, okay, where do I stand on these things? And in the context of what I have going on, the context of the pathway or goal that I'm on, which are the ones that I'm low on that that actually would benefit me to work on, okay, and narrow down that list and then say, okay, from those, if I have that list, maybe that's two or three, okay, now I'm going to proactively develop those. And that is going to take a deliberate step into environments that test and tease that attribute and develop it. So if it's adaptability, you're going to have to put yourself deliberately into environments that force adaptability, right? If it's patience, it's going to be environments that force patience. So that's the way to look at it. First say to yourself, okay, what, where do I fall? Then what am I great at? Awesome. What am I not so great at? Cool. Out of those that I'm not so great at, what would actually benefit me to work on? And then work on those.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting Like when we talk to people on this, we're always interested in their habits and kind of what does their day look like? What does the week look like? So say I've gone off and I've done my three tests now yesterday. They were hard. They they were definitely a bit of self inquiry, a bit of self-awareness. The repetition was trying to catch me out. And now I'm trying to apply them and put myself into these precarious situations of duress.
1: Yeah.
2: That's the real way for me to train them and bring them to the fore and, and to improve them. Is that fair to say? Yeah,
1: it is. And, and unfortunately, habits don't help. Okay, habits, what habits are is habits create certainty. That's, what, that's why we develop habits. Um, but good or bad, habits are certain. And so to develop attributes, we'll often have to break habit, go against our norm, go into things that we did not expect. Now, if you can develop habits around developing attributes, I actually have somewhat of a, of a habit of doing things that make me uncomfortable. That has that has served me pretty well. It served me well on the SEAL teams. It served me well as I retired, and I did not like public speaking. I did not like standing in front of people. And I said, well, if I don't like it, I should probably do it. So you can develop some habits around that as well. But just we have to understand that habits create certainty, and certainty and predictability is not necessarily what you need to develop attributes, unfortunately. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then speaking of your attributes
0: yourself rich was there any ones in particular that you wish you came out with the dial just a little bit higher
1: well out of the mental acuity ones i would say learnability i'm i'm actually out of the mental acuity ones i'm pretty high on the the first three which are situational awareness compartmentalization and task switching i'm not i'm actually not that high on learnability it takes me a while to learn things It takes me a while to pick things up i repeat the same mistake a couple times right I see people. You know, some of my teammates. They, you tell them something that once, and they got it. Like they only, I mean, it's just the first time every time. That is not me. So learnability would have been certainly one that I, I would have made my life a little bit easier. Um, let's see. I think. Well, empathy. I think empathy is really a powerful one. Whether you're, whether or not you're a Navy SEAL or anything else. I mean, Navy SEALs, I think, need to have an empathy dimmer switch because too much empathy at certain times can actually be detrimental. But you absolutely need empathy because you don't want to go down roads of that turn evil, right? So I've worked on my empathy as I've kind of grown and become more uh, experienced and mature. But I think I think overall, those are the, probably the ones that come to mind the most, or the the, the most immediately.
2: So I've been married for nearly six years. Mm-hmm. Two young children. The man beside me is getting married soon. Would it be a useful exercise for him and the missus to both do their own corresponding sets of attributes to understand how they could, I suppose, understand each other better? Could that improve their relationship and connection over time? Would that be a useful exercise to maybe avoid conflict or tension?
1: So, yes, to the first part, no to the second, right? The conflict contention is going to happen. So no matter what. <laughs> I've been married, I've been married twenty years, and um, <laughs> and my wife and I are are a true high performing team, and we still have conflict intentions Okay, that's but, cool. but Me it's too. really cool. um it's really about how you get through, you know, how you manage through that that conflict attention. But the answer is yes. every high performing team, is made up of individuals that actually have attributes that are both complementary and mesh in a way. So, you know, in the book, I talk about the others, which are the attributes that didn't really necessarily mesh into the first five categories. Um, And the reason why I had to put those separately is because when I looked at the attributes, kind of the polarities of each of those attributes, I said to myself, it became very clear that that both sides actually spoke to very high performance, right? So we talk about patience, patience and impatience well to be patient can be very very powerful for high performance but so can impatience right but impatience can be very powerful the other one was um, competitiveness right to be competitive a lot of people make this mistake they think oh to be really successful you have to be really competitive well that's not the case that is the case but what's not the case is that the the implied corollary is is not Successful, right? I am not a competitive person. I never have been. I am someone who always looks at a pack of of things, of people, or what's going on. And if there's competition going on, I'm usually like, okay, what else can I do, you know? But that's caused my brain to always think of different things. Always think of like outside the box. Think of you know, if I if I don't want to do that, what else can I do, right? So so um so competitive first competitiveness versus non competitiveness, and of course fear of rejection versus insouciance to what people think. I don't care what people think. Both are very powerful. Fear of rejection can actually cause you to do things outside your comfort zone for the good of the group. This is a lot of SEALs. I mean, a lot of SEALs are like, some of us don't like jumping out of airplanes like myself. Some guys don't like diving, you know, scuba diving. We did it because it's like, hey, I am not going to be left behind. I'm not going to let down my buddy, right? I'm going to do it even though it scares the hell out of me. Okay, that's fear of rejection acting in a positive way. But also not caring what people think. Like, I don't care what people think. That's This is the mark of most iconoclasts. You know, who basically say, hey, I'm going to I'm a trendsetter. I don't care. I'm going to step away from the group and do something new. Right. So so every team almost can actually benefit from both those polarities. My wife and I, I'm an inherently patient person. My wife is inherently impatient. That has worked beautifully in our marriage with kids. Now my kids are teenagers. And uh, it's worked beautifully because when patience has been required, I automatically, I automatically step up and take lead, right? And she, she, she follows. When impatience is required, she steps up and takes leads and I follow, right? So, so in, your, in our relationship, I think understanding attributes can really help us understand behavior and help us connect and work together more seamlessly.
0: You've added an, an endless amount of happiness onto my marriage there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: right, you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. In terms of people we work with being in a group back like in the SEALs, and now it, your group may have changed since you left and since you became a speaker, a development coach, whatever area you find yourself in, how important are the people around you and who has been maybe the biggest influence on what you've done since you've left
1: the SEALs? Yes. Um, well, I mean, my wife is is you know hands down the most important teammate I've ever ever had and continue to have, right? And I've and we've been again married for twenty years. So she she and I met when I was only I had only been a SEAL for five years, and it was before nine eleven. We got married right before nine eleven. So she's definitely it. However, I will say this: I you know the other habit I've made, and I realized this you know as I as I wrote the book and as I kind of thought about it, the other habit I've developed is I've consistently try to surround myself with people who are better than me. And that causes me to kind of think and perform better and and aspire. And that feeling of being like, oh my gosh, these people around me know way more than me. And I feel almost inadequate. I like that feeling because I know that I'm about to learn. I'm about to grow. I'm actually in an environment that's going to force me to grow. So so that's really my, what I've tried to do. I've tried to surround myself. I, th- I felt that way the whole, my whole career in the SEAL teams, I felt that way. I always felt like I was surrounded by people who were better than me and I loved it. And it just kept on, you know, forcing me to strive. And then when I got out, I, you know, I started hanging around with authors and neuroscientists and, and people who were really good at the stuff I was interested in so I could become better. And I still hang out with those people. And so I think that's, that's been my method for most of my life.
2: 20 years in the SEALs, understanding what they do writing the book a big airplane's just parked up outside your house and you're going into the airplane you're not a big fan but you've been on thousands and thousands and it goes up and it goes through a cloud and then lands in front of your house and sees a rich in front of the house but he's only 14. young rich yeah rich nice to meet you what are you going to say to that younger rich having been through all these journeys
1: i will say uh nothing i'll say nothing and the reason why i'll say nothing because i'm a real um I'm a real believer in this idea that we move through life, and we maximize those environments and experiences that that happen to us, and um, and we learn when we're supposed to learn. And I would be afraid of disrupting my process, kind of that butterfly effect that we hear about, right? I'd be afraid of saying something that put me on a different path. I'm I'm a true believer that every decision I've made up till now has led me till now, and I'm happy with what I have now, and I wouldn't want to imagine not having what I have now. So... Uh, so, yeah, I'd say nothing. I'd love to observe that, by the way. You know, I, I often think I wonder, I'd love to just be able to look back and just see myself. You know, my wife and I, it's like, like watch ourselves on our first date kind of thing. But I would do it muted. i keep the mute button on.
0: <laughs> and then if we're after looking back, looking forward in 100 years time, if we were to have this conversation or someone was to speak about this conversation and your overall impact and what you've left behind on the world, almost a legacy, yeah. what would you like them to say?
1: I would, um, so I'm, I'm really fascinated and kind of almost, well, obsessed is a strong word, but certainly fascinated with potential and human potential. This idea that we as human beings have this unique quality of, that we're kind of the only species, at least that we know of, that can imagine what does not exist and then bring it into existence, you know? And so, and we do that because we are designed physiologically and neurologically to step into and out to our edges. And so, Um, And so I think if I can, if I can leave any legacy, first, it would be to my, my family, you know, make sure my family continually does that and continually can, can explore and discover their own potential. But then, you know, uh, then provide content, provide lessons, provide um, information that allows other people to discover their own unique qualities and allows them to step out to their edges. Because, you know, the next Einstein is out there somewhere, right? And we got to find that person. Um. So that person can bring us to the next level of evolution, right? So, so if I can be, I'm not the next Einstein, <laughs> you know. So if I can be of help in finding that person or helping that person find themselves, um, that would be a cool. I think a cool endeavor.
2: I just like to chunk that up a little bit. I read your article that you you published recently. We've heard you speak about it on on previous shows, but it it's such a powerful and um, compelling discussion point, the difference between the the peak experience, which we can relate to in sporting environments, you know, having to really prepare and play well on that weekend versus the ability to consistently show up and be, and optimally perform. Um, I think it'd be something our listeners would get an awful lot of value from to hear it from someone who's been there and done that for so long.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it, it's interesting to me because I I was coming out of the SEAL teams, of course, um, always being asked about peak performance, and peak performance is one of those things that's kind of the thing. You know, everybody wants to peak all the time and peak as much as possible, and I I didn't like that term because ultimately I didn't think SEALs were necessarily peak performers, right? I thought we were kind of optimal performers, and and the reason is because peak is an apex. It's an apex from which. You can only come down okay and peak usually has to be planned for and scheduled and prepared for right the the professional athlete the olympian spends four years training and preparing so they meet they can peak for 40 seconds right in their wow. event right so so there's nothing wrong with peak but it's just i think it's unrealistic and in many cases unhealthy I think what SEALs are and what most people are and should be are optimal performance. Optimal performance is, in fact, what's the very best I can do in this moment, whatever the best might look like in this moment, right? Sometimes the best in the moment might look like peak. It might be like flow states and everything's clicking and everything's awesome. Other times it might be like, hey, I'm just head down, just nugging it out going step by step because it's dirty, it's ugly, it's hard. I'm crunching through that uh, that finals week when I'm in in school. I'm going through a combat. I'm the person grinding it out through chemotherapy because I'm trying to I'm trying to beat cancer. Or I'm the every everyday person who just got locked down because of COVID in quarantine and I don't know what the heck's going on. Right? None of us, I would imagine, would explain or describe our performance that first day of quarantine as peak. Right? We were all we were all basically doing the best we could, and so. And so optimal performance allows a modulation, and it allows us to understand where our energy levels are best suited. I don't have to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store, right? I don't have to be at my peak, you know. So I understand when I can modulate, so that I can better prepare. I can perform in an aerobic way versus anaerobic way, right? And I think this is the this is this is what the seals do. I think it's interesting. I was I was working out with a trainer at one point. And he was making me push these sleds, and he was doing a lot of timing and, and and things like that. And I was like, Hey, what are you timing? He's like, Oh, I'm timing. I'm timing how fast you come out of the come out of the gate, like this, how fast you start pushing, and then how fa- how long it takes you to, to finish the the push, right? And um, and I said, What are you what are you determining? He's like, Well, sometimes people come out with a real like power. And so they start fast and they taper off as they get to the end. He said, That's what I do. But what you're doing, what I noticed is you when you start, you actually start and you're at a pace and you you maintain your pace the whole way through. And I said, ah, that's interesting. And he had worked with a lot of seals. It's like, what do what do seals? What do you find seals mostly doing? He's like, most seals that I've worked with do what you do. And it's the difference between anaerobic and aerobic, right? Anaerobic is like this raw power, where aerobic is like a, is, is paste. Well, I think the reason is because seals understand, and I think Buds and Hell Week does this, right? Is that we never know when the end is, right? We never know when the end is going to come or what that's going to look like. So we never ever give it all out right away. We only give it all out when all outs required and as soon as all outs not required, we immediately back off because we're always in an we're always in a, an aerobic mindset. Okay? And I think with life we have to think of life as an aerobic mindset. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes the situation won't require an anaerobic push, right? And say hey, I'm gonna, I'm going to really peak out. I'm going to do my I'm going to do my max. But to try to strive to do that all the time is I think both unhealthy and irresponsible. So the idea would be Strive for optimal performance, not peak, because if you strive for optimal performance, you'll find and you'll be prepared for those times when you need to peak and you'll peak at the right moments.
0: That's excellent. Then it builds off even the life plot that's in your appendices of an up and down over the baseline. You might have to perform higher for certain things. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um. my question is, over the next short term, what's next for you, Rich? What are you looking to do?
1: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to keep on talking about the book <laughs> and we're, um, and so we're, we got the book out, we're building the attributes business, which we're, we're helping we're doing, the, uh, speaking, we're, we're doing some consulting with businesses to help figure out attributes and, and things like that. I'd love to, as we move forward, kind of, uh, kind of refine the assessment tool and, and make it even more robust. Cause that's fun. We are working right now on a leadership and team ability assessment tool. Um, so we should have that out. At most, at longest, probably by the end of the year, uh, we'll have that out and and available so people can can kind of assess their leadership and team ability as well as have some workbooks that go along with that. But yeah, it's really about talking about the book. It's been a it's it's so far it's it's a really it's being a, it's a fun journey and be able, to have com- be able to have conversations like this with 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 guys like you is cool because you get to talk about the book, meet people that you otherwise wouldn't have met. So we're just we're being present and enjoying the journey. <laughs> there you go.
2: And look for everyone listening, like we'll share everything in the show notes, but there's. In fairness to Rich, like you, you've written the book, but you've given so many ways to apply it, and the practical pieces, the you know the tests, and then the workbook to work on it. So really, to make sense of your attributes, so it's it's been really really well constructed. And you know, I was asked to put in a little suggestion. I said I'm looking forward to seeing the leadership and like the next piece of work. So looking forward to all that.
1: Yeah, well, I look forward to getting out there, uh, getting it out there for people, and um, and yeah, yeah, it's just gonna have fun as we as we move forward. And people can find, yeah, people can find anything they need on the site, uh theattributes.com. There's the book, there, the assessments, the workbooks, um, Instagram. You can find my Instagram handle there, and my LinkedIn and things like that. So, so it's a great place, kind of to 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 get it all.
2: Rich, everyone that comes on the show, we always come right to the end and ask them a very simple question, and it's interesting to build maybe off the optimal performance piece, but um. What does high performance mean to you, Rich?
1: High performance uh, to me means it's really what I define as true confidence. And the way I define true confidence is is the understanding that no matter what happens around me, no matter how much the environment changes or degrades or or gets better, I I will I'll figure it out. I'll perform through it. That's high performance to me to be able to just just perform. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean it looks pretty and everything's going great. It just means you're moving, you're figuring it out. You're not um, you're not stuck in a in an amygdala hijack. You're actually you're performing through. You're thinking through the stuff that you need to think through. So I think that's high performance for me and and well being as well. Mr. Vinny,
2: we both like to say thank you very much for for giving us your time. You're, you're a guest of ours. If you do make it across the Atlantic, you've got a couple of Irish hosts here to look after that side of the family. So yeah, thanks a lot for your time. Really grateful for it. Really learned a lot, and it's an excellent book. So well, well done putting that together,
1: we're we're definitely gonna get over there. So so when I do, I'll I'll look you guys up. We'll we'll have a pint and and uh, and chat some more. It's been fun. So thank you. We'll certainly enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Thanks a million. Thank you. All the best.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelled H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The goat, Michael Jordan.